0: So people come to me and they say, when they find out that I'm Jewish, and not just the secular Jew as so many of my people tend to be these days, but that I come from an orthodox and ultra-orthodox background and from a long line of orthodox and Hasidic rabbis. My father's father came to this country from Austria, a Hasidic rabbi. My uncle Saul, a Hasidic rabbi in Oak Park, Michigan, in a suburb of Detroit, I have another uncle in Chicago who's an Orthodox rabbi. My uncle Saul's two sons. My cousins are Hasidic rabbis in Lakewood, New Jersey. And then I twisted off and became a Baptist preacher. (laughs) They're so thrilled, it's hard to begin to explain. But when people find this out, they come to me and they say, wow, you were so Orthodox. You have all these rabbis in your family. I mean, if you went back to Austria where my grandfather came from, you'd probably find it going generationally with the son always taking the father's place in the community as the rabbi. You were so orthodox. All these rabbis in your family, how in the world did you ever get saved? Now, when I hear that question, usually looming behind that question is this mindset that says, well, certainly the Gentiles are saved by the name of Jesus, but the Jewish people must be saved by some other name. Now, when I hear that, I just kind of look at them and bat my eyes and say, well, I trust in Jesus. They say, come on now, really? How did you get saved? Because they just can't fathom the notion that the Jewish person gets saved by the same name that the Gentile gets saved by. And friend, listen, it's the other way around. It's to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Truth is, you got saved, same way my people have always gotten saved, if in fact they ever have. You search this Bible from Genesis to Revelation. There's but one promise here. There are those that tell us there's 33,000 promises in the Word of God. These people have more time on their hands than I tend to have. I want to suggest to you there's one promise here. It begins in the opening passages of Genesis, and it's unfolded throughout the entirety of the Word of God, and it's that single promise of redemption to everyone that will believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Those 33,000 promises that we speak of is God simply unfolding that single promise of redemption. I was on an airplane years ago going from Charlotte, North Carolina to Denver, Colorado, talking to the man in the seat next to me. Finally, he pops up and says, I believe Jesus. He didn't say, I believe in Jesus. And there's a difference. I believe Jesus. I just don't happen to believe he was exclusive. I said, well, he thought he was. John 14 and verse 6, he couldn't have been more clear. I am the way. That little word, T-H-E, is huge in that verse. Stop skipping over the little words so that you can turn pages quicker. You're missing the import of what God is trying to convey. Jesus is not declaring, I am one among many. He is not telling us all roads will get you to God. He is emphatically declaring, I am the one and only. I am the way, the truth, the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. He said, okay, that's just one verse, though. I said, all right, then how do you like Acts 4 and verse 12 then? neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. See, folks, this is an imperative in both of these verses. These verses are telling us that if we have any hope of having our sins forgiven, a home in heaven for all of eternity, a life in this flesh on this earth that far exceeds anything we ever thought possible, we must come through the name of Jesus. No other name will suffice. Well, understanding this, people still come to me wanting to know, how is it that you got saved? Because they're still wrestling with this, the, with this notion that the Jewish people must be saved by some other name. And we're partly to blame for that. I mean, we have some names we're pretty proud of. All right, we have a couple we're a little arrogant with. I mean, we have the name of Abraham. And just as harshly as we know how, we want you to understand he's ours, not yours. There are those that do understand God entered into an everlasting covenant with Abraham. Some just take it too far. There are those that insist because of this everlasting covenant that God entered into with Abraham, that in that covenant, he has automatically secured everlasting life for all of Abraham's seed that would follow and that they need nothing more. They're taken care of because of the Abrahamic covenant. There's one very popular preacher on television that espouses this notion. If I mention his name, I'm sure every one of you know who I'm referring to right now. And he insists that all Jewish people are saved under the name of Abraham. They don't need the blood of Jesus. And guys like me are wrong for trying to take the gospel to the Jewish people and see them come under the blood of Messiah and be saved. Well, if he's right, then we need to take a look at the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis 12 verses 1 through 3 comprise the bulk of the Abrahamic covenant. I want you to see, as I read these words, if you find any hint whatsoever, that because of these words, God has automatically secured everlasting life for all of Abraham's seed to follow, they need do nothing more just by accident of birth therein. Now, the Lord had said unto Abram, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing." And I will bless him that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. So, is it there? Of course not. If it was, think with me. What about old wicked Caiaphas? I call him wicked Caiaphas. He was high priest at the time Jesus was crucified, but he wore those robes as high priest with no thought of bringing any glory to God. He's too busy heaping the glory on himself. Pilate had Jesus mercilessly beaten, put him on a balcony as a spectacle to the crowd that assembled on the pavement below, knowing that they understood Jesus had done nothing to deserve this sort of treatment and thought they'd be moved with compassion at this awful spectacle and want to have Jesus released. But there was Caiaphas working the crowd into such a frenzy that they'd have no compassion on Jesus, and they cried out all the more for him to be crucified. Now, Caiaphas has the name of Abraham. If the name of Abraham saves, he'd be in heaven right now. But he can't be in heaven right now because he never had the name of Jesus. What about Judas? Judas marches the troops into the garden where he knows Jesus will be a prayer, walks up to him, plants a kiss on his cheek. I can see Jesus doing this. us out the Son of Man with a kiss? But he allowed them to lead him away where he'd be crucified the next day. Now, I don't believe Judas ever understood who Jesus was. My take on Judas, he was a zealot. If Jesus truly was who he claimed to be, and took his rightful place on David's throne and established his kingdom reign. Judas would now come along as part of the ruling class and no longer part of the oppressed. But Jesus wasn't moving fast enough in order to suit Judas. So I see Judas marching the troops into the garden to back Jesus into a corner, to force his hand, so he has to come out and exert his authority as Messiah and establish that kingdom reign. That didn't happen. Jesus went to the cross. Judas went out and hanged himself. Now Judas has the name of Abraham. If the name of Abraham saves, he'd be in heaven right now, but he can't be in heaven right now because he never had the name of Jesus. And if the name of Abraham saves, somebody please tell me. Why didn't Jesus understand this? Over and over and over again, Jesus keeps telling us, I'm come for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Well, come on, folks. If the name of Abraham saves, there are no lost sheep of the house of Israel. So what was Jesus doing here? That's what uh, Caiaphas, uh, I'm sorry. That's what Nicodemus wants to know, John chapter three. Here comes Nicodemus. Now, in stark contrast to Caiaphas stands Nicodemus. Here's a man that wore those robes as a Pharisee, and I believe wore them honorably before God. A man who'd memorized Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and I don't mean just the names of the books. Every word in those books. Not only did he memorize those words, but he walked in those words. They dictated everything about his life on this earth and how he ruled over God's people. Nicodemus understood the Word of God better than most. He understood intimately well how Judaism was observed in his day. But he's a little perplexed with this newcomer and the things he's hearing him say and watching him do. So he comes to Jesus by night in John chapter 3. He sits down with him, looks across the room, and says, Good master. We know that thou art a man sent from God. For no man can do the the things which thou doest, except God be with him. Now listen to Jesus. This is a non-response. He pushes the whole discussion aside, looks this ultra-Orthodox Jewish man in the eyes and tells him, marvel not that I say unto thee, ye must be born again. What's that have to do with anything? Jesus just asks, I'm sorry, Nicodemus just asked for Jesus' authority. Jesus is telling Nicodemus he's got to get saved. It's a non-response. And it always troubled me that Jesus did that till I took a long, hard look at who Jesus was talking to. Jesus was looking across the room at one of the most religious men who had ever lived. According to Judaism, a Mazzotic, a righteous man, a man who memorized the word of God and walked in those words. He's looking into the eyes of this man and telling him, don't you be surprised, Nicodemus. With all that you have done to commit the word of God to memory, don't you be surprised, Nicodemus. With all that you do to strive to walk in those words, don't you be surprised, Nicodemus. With all the good deeds that you do in the flesh, trying to appease the God you're trying to serve, don't you be surprised, Nicodemus. Wrapped up in all of your religion, I'm even telling you, you've got to get saved. That's a powerful statement, and it settles the issue. Nobody is saved by virtue of having the name of Abraham. So what value then is there in the Abrahamic covenant and it being valid for us to this very day? Well, the last clause of that covenant tells us that in these shall all families of the earth be blessed. We see this fulfilled all the time, don't you? From Abraham came Isaac to Jacob to Judah to David to Jesus Christ. Jesus goes to the cross, bleeds and dies in your place and mine. We come along over 2,000 years later fall on our face at the foot of the cross, plead the blood of Jesus as payment for our sin and get saved, that covenant has been fulfilled. Friend, let me tell you, your family can know no greater blessing than that you know Jesus as your personal Savior and are secured of a home in heaven for all of eternity. Every time pastor mounts that pulpit and stands before you and preaches the word of God and souls respond to that message and and the Holy Spirit draws them to the cross and they fall on their face and Plead the blood of Jesus and get saved, that covenant is being fulfilled. Every time our missionaries go around the world and witness and preach, every time you go into your community and witness to those souls around you and these souls get saved, this covenant is being fulfilled. And it will continue to be fulfilled until Jesus Christ returns. Well, the name of Abraham doesn't say, maybe the name of Moses saves. If you think we're a little arrogant with the name of Abraham, you need to take a long, hard look at Orthodox Judaism, where the name of Moses comes to play. Uh, I mean, we've risen this thing to an art form. I'm in about 100 churches a year all across the country. Uh, I'll admit, most of them Baptist, (laughs) but uh, they're all different. Some of these churches I'm in are just a little too starchy. I mean, heaven forbid the corners of your mouth ever point north. And if you ever did that, you'd have to come to the altar and get your heart right with God before you'd go home because, after all, this is the house of God. It must be sacred if it's in the house of God. I don't know what makes this sacred. This must be it. Now, don't you want what I have? They're running scared, not of the gospel, folks, of you. I mean, come on, friend. If anybody ought to have the right to rejoice, it ought to be the blood-washed, redeemed saints of God, don't you think? Well, if you believe that... Would you telegraph that to your face every now and then? If you think the preaching gets a little dry and dull, you ought to get up here and get a gander what the preacher gets a look at. It'd scare you to death. I mean, these people, I look at them, they're so rigidly legalistic. I think some of these churches, breathing must be a sin. And I just shake my head, because friend, let me tell you, you don't have a clue what it means to keep the law. If anybody ought to know how to keep the law, Jews first and ought to. Come on, folks. We wrote the book on the law. This is a Jewish book, you know, written by Jews, to Jews, about a Jew. Anybody all know how a Jewish person ought to? If I were to ask you this morning, how many commandments did God give to Moses on Mount Sinai? You'd likely say, how many? And you're thinking, that's too simple. What's he getting at? Well, you're right. I'm baiting you. Uh, you know, you got to get your kicks when you can. <laughs> 613 commandments God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. Well, you don't think they were... 40 days and 40 nights, chiseling out 10 thou shalt nots, do you? I mean, what was this all about? Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. No explanation was given, none was necessary. What were they doing up there all that time? Moses goes in the mountain around Exodus 19 or 20, doesn't come down until about Exodus 32, but God isn't done yet. The people fell into sin. He sends them to deal with that. He does, he comes back another 40 days and 40 nights. What are they doing all this time? 613 commandments, what they're doing. They cover every aspect of our existence on this earth, the kind of food we eat, the clothes we wear, the associations that we keep. Um, They cover our relationship as children to our parents, parents to our children, spouse to our spouse, created beings to our creator God. They cover the tabernacle, the temple, the priesthood, the high priesthood. They cover the civil code and the moral code. This is where the 10 commandments tend to come in, but it's so much more than that. Next time you're reading James 2 and verse 10. Remember, this is a Jewish man writing these words, a Jewish man who knows intimately well how many commandments God had given Moses on that mountain. Next time you're reading those words, it tell you you keep the whole law and you had offended one point, you're guilty of all. Stop thinking nine out of 10 and I'm guilty of all 10. James is telling us if you keep 612, but you fail in the 613, you're guilty of all 613. He's stressing what an utter, exercise and futility is to think that you can merit righteousness by the works of the law, the deeds of the flesh. It will never happen, folks. It was never intended to accomplish this. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3, by the law, no flesh shall be justified. Romans chapter 8 and verse 3, what the law could not do, being weak in the flesh, God did by sending his son. And I have to tell you, as one who is raised under the bondage to the name of Moses... I got to tell you how thrilled I am to be able to stand here this morning and tell you how that, where the law was incapable of cleansing me of my sin, where the law was incapable of justifying me in the sight of a holy and a righteous God, where the law was incapable of allowing me to transgress that veil, enter that holy of holies, that throne room of God in heaven, and to be embraced by Him, not as a stranger, not as a servant. But as a child of the living God, I am thrilled this morning to be able to tell you where the law was incapable of accomplishing these things, thank God in heaven, Jesus Christ did when he went to the cross of Calvary and bled and died for me. But having said that, I have to hurry to tell you, if ever there was a household that was going to make it to heaven by keeping the law, Abraham Reichman's household would be that household. We did so many things as Orthodox Jews, you're going to be just tickled pink that we no longer uh, observe these things in modern-day Christianity, but you've got to go back and remember, Christianity began a sect of Judaism. Do the math in the first six chapters of the book of Acts, and conservatively speaking, you have over 100,000 saved, baptized, added to that church in Jerusalem. There's not Gentile on the crowd. So whose culture do you suppose they were following? I can promise it wasn't Southern California culture. <laughs> So I see these things prevalent in the life of the Apostle Paul and the life of Jesus himself. What I hold in my hand is known as the tefillin. You see it in Scripture as a phylactery. It's a little leather cube. Inside that little leather cube is a piece of the law, specifically Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one Lord. The following verses then tell us that we were to dangle the law as frontlets before our eyes, bind it, on our hand, uh, bind it to our doorpost and to our gate. There's another form of this known as a mezuzah. And then, Dad, this is written to us, from the rising of the sun to the setting of the sun. Dad, we are to teach the truths of God to our household. So as a tangible reminder of this responsibility, we wear this. Now, depending on how observant you are, orthodox you are, would dictate how much you would wear this. There are some this just becomes a natural part of their everyday wardrobe. And I have to tell you guys, if you had to wear one of these little things every day of your life, it tend to change your life, wouldn't it? Now, the argument between the Pharisees and Sadducees, could you get by with wearing them like this or did you have to wear them like this? But think about it. If everything you were to fix your gaze upon were to be filtered through the will of God for your life, how could that not have an impact on your daily routine? No Orthodox Jewish man will ever be anywhere with his head uncovered. Now, you can call this a keeper. You can call it a yarmulke. Please don't call it a skull cap. I just <laughs> think that's tacky. So these can be colorful, personalized, individualized. I have one I bought in Jerusalem a few years back, has Chicago Cubs embroidered in there. <laughs> Worked once. <laughs> but uh, uh, whatever no orthodox man will ever be anywhere with his head uncovered. Can you guess why? This is a tangible reminder. There's a God above me. I'm accountable to this guy. So what's wrong with this in modern-day Christianity? There's not a soul here this morning who's saved that ought not also appreciate, one day we're all going to stand before Jesus and give an account. But you know what? That is such a future event. It gets pushed so far back in our thinking It just doesn't seem to work its way into the everyday routine of our daily lifestyle. So what would be wrong with having a tangible reminder that the things I'm thinking, doing, saying right here, right now, one day I'm going to have to stand before the Lord and explain these? Well, no Orthodox Jewish man will ever be anywhere without his talus, the prayer shawl. We were taught in Scripture that we were to sew the fringes upon the borders of the garment. This is the garment then that was designed for that purpose. The fringes represent God's promises to my people. No orthodox Jewish man will be without this garment in some form or fashion. This is his ability to pray. You may see a Jewish man not wearing the entire prayer shawl, the entire talus, but you'll see the fringes, the tzitzes, exposed at his waistband. He's wearing another form that's under his shirt, under his vest, exposing the tzitzes. Now he can pray. I've seen Jewish men sometimes these days just tying these to their belt loops, and that seems to be sufficient. But, you know, I see Jesus wearing this garment very clearly in the Word of God. Do you remember when Jesus was walking through the city streets and the crowds thronged him, and a woman showed up on this particular day in a crisis situation in her life, desperately needing to approach Jesus, but couldn't get close enough to him because there were too many people? So what did she do? She came up from behind him. She reached out and she did what? touch the hem of his garment. Look what she reached for in her crisis, those promises of God. Do you remember when Jesus said, when you go into your prayer closet, close the door? This is what he has in mind. See, I wasn't raised with the same advantage you've been raised with. Wasn't raised to believe that when I pray, God will respond. I mean, why should he? Do you remember how astonished David was at this notion? He cries out to God, what is man that thou art mindful of him? Elsewhere, the psalmist tells us that God condescends to look upon the heavens. If it's beneath God for him to look upon the heavens, how much more so for him to look upon me? So I'd cover myself in my talus, clutch onto his promises, go to him in prayer with no assurance whatsoever he's going to respond. I mean, why should he? But he ought to respond to these. Now, in just a couple of months, we will mark 50 years since I trusted Jesus as Messiah and got saved. To this very day i have to tell you um, whenever i think of those words in hebrews that tell me that because of everything that jesus did for me on the cross of calvary i now can come boldly to the throne of grace and find help and mercy in my time of need i don't have to worry about whether or not he'll hear me when i pray i know as any father longs to hear the voice of his son My heavenly Father longs to hear me coming to him in prayer and longs to give me every good and he possibly can. We did so many things as Orthodox Jews. My mother had to keep a kosher household, and ladies, that's no small trick. She could never put meat on a dish she'd ever put a dairy product on. Couldn't wash those dishes together in the same water. Not even the same sink. Ever wonder why your kitchen sink is really... and it's not just because the garbage disposal is on one side. One side for meat products, the other side for dairy products. Uh, my mother could never put milk in a refrigerator she'd ever put meat in. Uh, when it came to the Sabbath, my mother had to have all of her meals prepared by sundown on Friday for the next 24 hours. Best she could do is put a candle or a can under them to try to keep them warm till they were ready to be served. But if that went out, it went out. You couldn't relight it. you can't kindle a fire on the Sabbath. Uh, when it came to the Sabbath, we did nothing but worship and rest. I mean, uh, we lived too far from the synagogue at one point that in order to get there, we'd have to violate the Sabbath day journey limitation. And my father, the son of a Hasidic rabbi, would not allow that to happen. And so we held shul in our living room. When my father was through leading us through the worship, he'd get up, go into his den, lay down and rest. I mean, we didn't flip a light switch. We didn't watch television. We didn't drive the family car on the Sabbath. I was saved a lot of years before I even knew such a thing as college football even existed. It's played on the Sabbath. Didn't watch it on television, didn't go to the park and play, didn't go to the stadium and watch others play. Um, In spite of this, in spite of how much my father bound himself and his household to the name of Moses, in spite of the fact that my father possessed the name of Abraham, my father finished his life in May of 1990, He was living in Israel at the time. He's buried over there somewhere. I'm not allowed nowhere. He only moved to Israel to get as far from me as he possibly could. By living there, he protected himself. He would never, ever run the risk of having to bump into his only son, having to listen to his only son tell him words he desperately did not want to have to listen to. So I hope you'll understand my heart and what I'm about to tell you. I had a lady in North Carolina years ago got violently upset with me over this. Let me know it in no uncertain terms. I'm not sitting in judgment on my father. I'm not condemning him in any way. But I have to have a grasp of what the realities are. Knowing my father's heart as I do. I mean, to go to that extent, to relocate to Israel so he wouldn't have to listen to a gospel witness. Knowing my heart, uh, my father's heart, as I do; knowing the Word of God, as I do. Since May of 1990, there's only one place my own father can possibly be, and it's all for the lack of a gospel witness. Nobody took the risk. Nobody brought those words to that ultra-orthodox Jewish man they desperately did not want to have to listen to. And I often wonder what could have transpired in the eternal soul of my own father. Had somebody taken that risk, but nobody had. Clearly, the name of Abraham doesn't say. The name of Moses saves nobody. So how'd you get saved, preacher? The name of Jesus. Now, my parents did get a divorce when I was very young. And in Orthodox Judaism, that's all but unheard of. But looking back on it, God just removed the hindrance. My father stood in the way of our ever even hearing the name of Jesus, much less a gospel witness. We had friends down the street. These kids loved Jesus. They kept trying to tell us about Jesus, kept trying to get us to go to their Sunday school with them. My father had it to hear at one point, put his foot down. These kids no longer existed. We saw them at school. We'd have to turn around and walk in the other direction. We saw them on the street. We'd have to cross the street, pass them on the other side. Once my father left my mother, he packed up and moved from the suburbs of Detroit to Chicago, and then later to Israel. Mom packs her five kids up moves us back into the city of Detroit, goes to work, take care of our five kids, and now the gospel's free to reach us. I made friends with a guy down the street. You know how boys are, we're just the thickest thieves with our pals. Uh, 24-7 was never enough, right? And that's how David and I, we were inseparable until Sunday morning. I run down to their house, bang on the door, they all just disappeared. They never told me where they disappeared to. They were just gone. I figured one day they're going to tell me what the big secret's all about. Till then, I'm going to find something better to do on Sunday mornings. And this rocked along for about a year and a half Till they dangled a trophy in front of David one day in Sunday school and told him, the one that brings the most visitors next week to our vacation Bible school, we're going to give you this trophy. Now, look, this is the best friend I have in all the world, Right? You have to know he's up late at night weeping over his little lost Jewish buddy, right? I mean, not a chance, folks. He never even told me where he disappeared to every Sunday until they offered him that trophy. I'm just glad they finally motivated this kid, or he'd probably still be keeping it a secret. But make no mistake about it, David wanted that trophy. He finds me in the neighborhood that afternoon, runs up all out of breath. Al, we're having of Bibles to go to my church next week. Do you want to go? I said, great. What's that? I had no idea what either were. This was not my world, but this was my buddy, so I was going. Monday morning, we're standing on the curb, waiting for that Sunday school bus to come get us, and we could tell it was getting closer, because we could hear it backfiring through the neighborhood. (laughs) We got on that death trap, and somehow it got us to that church building. I didn't even know enough to call it a church building. I was just never so glad to be anywhere in all my life just to be off that death trap they had me on. I went in that building, my world began to spin. They took us in small groups, started teaching us Old Testament stories. I'd been going to Hebrew school at this point, learning about David and Daniel, so I was into that. They uh, had this torture chamber. They put us boys in this room, around this table, gave us glue, popsicle sticks and matchsticks, and expected us to emerge with something recognizable. I mean, get the picture. You've got a Jewish boy in the basement of a Baptist church trying to make decorative crosses out of a popsicle sticks. It's a little surreal when you think about it, and it wasn't <laughs> happening. They had cookies and Kool-Aid, and boys liked to eat, so I was into that. And then they brought me into a room a lot like this. I sat right on that last row, right on the middle aisle, just taking it all in. They had a guy up here called Cowboy Bob. Now, Kid growing up in the streets of Detroit, I was glued to Old Cowboy Bob. Uh, they were singing songs I did I'd never heard about things I'd never heard anything about. Finally, this guy comes up and says, "We're going to have an offering." I said, "You got to be kidding. We don't even do this in the synagogue. These GoYim, these Gentile." They're going to have an offering? This one i got to see. My Old Testament mind is running like 90. I'm looking for an altar, fire, a knife. I'm looking for somebody to bring a little lamby down here, lay him on the altar, and I mean, have an offering. And instead, these men stood down here so proud with these silver plates tucked under their arms, and I'm sitting back there thinking, what a shabby thing to give to God. I mean, what is God going to do with a silver plate? I was never so disappointed in all my life. They weren't even silver. They were aluminum. I mean, what kind of cheapskates have I fallen in with? Then they did something I really didn't understand, but I've learned to appreciate this. They pass those plates, people put money in them. I thought, wow, what a concept. You know what? Every now and then, it even works. I went home that day, my head was spinning. I didn't understand much of what I just experienced, but I couldn't wait to get back to that place next morning. I mean, first backfire in the neighborhood, I'm out on that curb. You know, this became a problem for me. When I did get saved and I came into the church and I looked at all the empty seats. See, this one I couldn't figure out. I knew I'd been confused. These people shouldn't be. Wonder why it is they can't stand to sit in these seats and worship the one they claim to love. Friend, let me tell you, your presence in this place every time these doors are open is vitally important. Visitors come to your church. (laughs) They're not looking for the pastor. They know he's got to be here haven't found that one yet. It's got to be here because we all believe it and live by it. We can go to Bedside Baptist, Creekside Baptist, Family Reunion Baptist, Football Baptist, but you have to be here. I think it's in second hallucinations. Um, (laughs) They're looking for the people that make up Soma's community church. And when they don't find you here, they go through those doors making value judgments that just may have eternal consequence attached to him. And it has nothing to do with whether or not he was true to the word of God with what he preached. I mean, how would they even know? It has everything to do with them assessing whether or not the things he has to say have enough impact in your life to drag you out of your bed on a rain-soaked Sunday morning and place you in these seats to worship the one that you claim to love. And when they figure that what he has to say has no more impact in your life than this, They wonder why they should give it any credence in theirs. And they walk through those doors just maybe into a crisis eternity because we couldn't bother to get up and come. Now, if you're still a little fuzzy on this one, that voice in your ear on Sunday morning and we all hear it. Come on now. Nobody expects you to go to church on such a wet, soggy day like this. You've had a long, hard week. This is your only day to sleep in. It's your only time with the kids. After all, you can worship God in nature, yeah, like you would. You won't worship him here. What are the chances you're going to worship him out by the river or the lake? Come on, folks. It's either too hot, too cold, too wet, too dry, feel too good, I don't feel good enough, and we just pick one every Sunday and use them at will. It's no big deal. There'd be plenty of people for that preacher to preach to. Just roll over and go back to sleep. That voice will never be Jesus. So, whose voice is it? And what does Jesus say about that? My sheep know my voice and they follow me. But a stranger's voice? Why do we keep following that stranger's voice? I'm telling you, your presence in this place every time these doors are open is vitally important to what your church and your pastor is going to be able to accomplish and the lives of your people in your community for the cause of Christ, you need to be here. Well, Friday was family day. Mom wouldn't have come if she could have come. My oldest sister is a teenager, so I dragged her with me, and we sat right on that last row, right on the aisle again, and I was excited for her to see everything I've been involved in all week. I'm kind of prompting her along the way, and where do you see this, and get a little of this, and you ain't seen nothing like this, you know. Finally, this guy comes up and says, we're going to do this again next year. How many of you are coming? I shot my hand up. I said, man, I'm coming. She said, oh, no, you're not. And I knew what that meant. This wasn't for us. Put it on my mind when I'm with the rest of the summer. Came home in August one evening, and there's a stranger in our living room, and he's in an argument with my mom. Leaned up against walls, see what the argument's all about. Turns out he's the youth director at that church where I'd gone to vacation Bible school. Youth camp's coming up. He found out I have teenage sisters. He's there trying to convince my mom to let him take my two oldest sisters to that camp. Mom would have nothing to do with it. He won't take no for an answer. Finally, mom pulls my two oldest sisters aside. Do you really want to do this? Mom, all our friends from school are going to be there. We really want to go. She said, okay, you can go. Don't you listen to a thing they tell you. (laughs) And I'm here to tell you, teenagers haven't changed at least since 1961. (laughs) They told mom anything she wanted to hear so they could do what they wanted to do. First thing out of Sheila's mouth, when she came bounding off that bus Friday from that camp, mama, I trusted Jesus as my savior. And I went, yeah. But I had no idea what that meant. But I figured mom's gonna let me go back to that place I liked so well. And she did. She let us all go as much as we wanted to, but we were completely on our own. We walked, we rode our bikes, we hitched ride. we rode that wretched Sunday school bus, but we got there. First Sunday night, uh, after that camp. David's oldest brother had been to that camp. He drags me down here before church even began. I can remember standing here. The pastor's standing there. He doesn't even explain him to me. He just tells the pastor, this boy wants to be a Hebrew Christian. He looks at me and said, is that right, boy? I had no idea what they were saying. I'm still not sure what he was saying. But the pastor prayed. I didn't. He did. They, he baptized me and started growing up in that church. Following summer, my mom's parents came from New Jersey, as they did every summer. Mom told us we have to put away everything that has to do with that church while her parents were here. Put away the wall plaques, put away the Bibles, couldn't talk about that church, couldn't go to that church long as they were here. She knew if her parents ever found out what she was letting her kids do, she'd lose them, and she couldn't afford that. So we did what mom told us to do, but early in the week, we're sitting there in the living room. One evening, Sheila broke down in tears. Mama, I just can't hide it anymore turned to our grandparents and told them, I trusted Jesus as my Savior. Well, they shuffled us off to bed and they had a brawl. It was all in Yiddish. I don't know exactly what they said, but the upside was they woke me up very early, hugged me, kissed me, said goodbye, got in their car, drove out of our lives, and we no longer exist. See, we turned from the faith. And now mom's greatest fear is realize she's all alone in this world, five kids to take care of, doesn't even have mom and dad to lean on anymore. Well, Every time the preacher had a guest speaker at the church, he brought him by the house trying to reach mom. Mom would have nothing to do with this. I'm walking home one evening. I'm getting close to the house. I see mom pulling the driveway after a long, hard day at work. Stopped the car, looked over her shoulder, spotted the preacher's car, knew what was waiting for her in her living room, so she backed out and left. She wouldn't come home until the coast was clear. 1966, we had a revival meeting at the church. All of us kids were there. I'm sitting close to the front. During the invitation, I hear... And I looked over my shoulder to see who everybody was so startled with. I don't know how long she'd been there. But obviously, she'd slipped into that auditorium, been there long enough, heard enough of the gospel. Here came my mother all by herself down that aisle, knelt at that altar right in front of me, trusted Jesus as her Savior. Well, a few years later, God was just beating me up. I tried to look for such a theological thing. He was just working me over, trying to do everything he could to convince me nothing happened that night before that church service began. And I was as lost as ever, and I needed to get saved. The problem was, I'm a teenager at this point, and some pride has settled in. And there's no way I'm going to go to that altar and convince those people I've been a phony all this time. So I wrestled with God for a whole year, and I thought I had some pretty good arguments. So what about my buddy Ronnie? I'm as good as Ronnie. If Ronnie's saved, I got to be saved. A couple weeks later, Ronnie got saved. I thought, boy, that's a dirty (laughs) deal. I said, all right, what about Randy? I'm better than Randy. If he's saved, I'm in. Then Randy got saved. I mean, he went a whole year like this. I kept putting him up. God kept knocking him down. Finally, March 9th, 1969, I'm seated at the Fundamental Baptist Temple in Detroit, Michigan, the far right-hand section, the far aisle, about four or five rows from the front. Louis Hanna's preaching Christ, and it hits me. Everything he's telling me about Jesus is everything my daddy ever taught me about Messiah. There's no conflict between these testaments, folks. From Genesis to Revelation, it is one plan of salvation to everyone that will believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. During the invitation, I clutched onto that pew in front of me with all I was worth, and God just poured it on. What are you going to do, Al? I mean, this is it. You know nothing happened years ago before that church service began. You're as lost as ever, and you've got to get saved. And if you don't do it now, you never will. I said, yeah, 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 yeah. If they sing one more verse, I'll go. They sang another verse, and I gripped even tighter than I had before. God saying, I thought you said, okay, look, if they sing another verse, they must have sung 12 verses of that invitation before I peeled my fingers out of that pew. I came down here, I met my Sunday school teacher, and I said to you, I've got a lot of religion, but I don't have Jesus. I've got to get saved. And he was dumbfounded. Al, you know these verses as well as I do. I said, I know, but this time I need to know that I know, you know? So he took that Bible and he showed me those verses. Verses, at this point, I've been showing to others. But most importantly, he let me do something here that never happened years ago over here. He let me open my heart to Jesus, confess my sin, and my need of his blood to cleanse me of that sin, and invite Jesus into my heart to save my soul. Now, when I got up from that altar, I was transformed for all of eternity. Nothing can change that. I wouldn't take for it, but you need to understand, the day I was born again, I died. My father said Shiva for his only son. It's the morning ritual a Jewish person goes through when a loved one dies. He put boxes in front of his uh, sofa and chairs because... One of your loved ones has suffered. You shouldn't be comfortable. You should suffer and sit on these hard boxes. Cover the mirrors in his house because you're in mourning. You don't worry about your appearance. Every day at the appointed time, he stood in his living room, and he faced Jerusalem, and he recited the Kaddish, the mourner's prayer, literally begging God for the soul of his loved one who had just died. At the end of that period of mourning, he put away the boxes, uncovered his mirrors. When I'm with the rest of his life, and I no longer exist. First time I went to Israel, 1996... I wanted to visit his grave, contacted my uncle Saul uh, for the location, and he refused to give it to me. He simply told me, I don't believe it'd be your father's desire for you to visit his grave, and he won't tell me where it is. My aunt, my father's oldest sister, wrote a letter, and she said, your father lived a lonely life filled with heartache, the greatest heartache that he had. He left no footprints in the sands of time. I'm his only son, his only namesake, and I don't exist. That means my father left nothing on this earth behind him. His life was a wash. And to a Jewish man, that's a shameful thing. And I don't tell you this, that you should pity me. You need to understand I got far better than I gave that morning. What I gave was a relationship with my earthly father that could have only lasted until May of 1990. What I got was a relationship with my heavenly father. that will go on for all of eternity and nothing can change that. The day my earthly father turned his back on me, my heavenly father embraced me and took me to his heart, a son. And I wouldn't take for it. Well, a couple of years later, my mother's parents broke down, came back, and visited. Now, we hadn't heard from them in any way, shape, or form in like 10 years at this point. We brought them to a youth banquet at the church on a Saturday night, and they liked it, kind of shocked them. Y'all weren't the six-headed monsters they were convinced you were, but they wouldn't go to church the next morning. A few years later, they came again, and this time they did go to church. We sat right in front of the preacher. Uh, my grandfather, my mother, me, my grandfather, uh, my, my grandmother, my grandfather, Yeah, and my grandmother on this end. Louis Hanner's preaching Christ just like the day that I got saved. During the invitation, I turned to my grandmother and said, Bubby, don't you understand? This is Judaism. This is Messiah. This is everything Judaism has taught you to long for. If Jesus is not Messiah, Judaism makes no sense. It has no focal point. You're wasting your life but Jesus is Messiah and he wants to be your Messiah. Don't you want Jesus? And she's shaking her head and stomping her foot just as so my mother pushed me aside. Mama, don't you want to be in heaven with daddy? Daddy's asking Jesus to be a savior. And to my amazement, I look and on that altar is this 85-year-old Orthodox Jewish man who had immigrated to this country from Russia around 1917. Here he is on that altar, that Baptist church in Detroit, becoming a child of the king. My Mom, uh, my, my grandmother started crying. Mom took her mom by the hand. They pushed me aside. You know, they pushed me around a lot, but that's another story. <laughs> but I watched my mother hand in hand with her mother walk down that aisle, and there they knelt side by side, those two old world Jews, both in their middle 80s, both immigrants from Russia, having come at the same time on the same ship, both becoming children of the king. Now, I can't remember yesterday. I'll never forget this sight. But I did have to wonder, come on, you know, first time in church, that's a lot to grasp. How much could they really have, you know, and they went home to New Jersey to their Jewish community and lifestyle, but they bought Bibles and they read those Bibles. One day, my grandfather told one of my sisters, you know, when I used to think of God, I thought of God. Now, when I think of God, I think of Jesus. 1977, he went home to be with the Lord, went to New Jersey for the funeral, Came into their little apartment. There were the boxes. Very quickly, my grandmother takes me by the hand, walks me into the bedroom, said, see, we have the boxes. We've covered our mirrors. This is so the rabbi shouldn't know we've changed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Last time I saw her, she's about 102 years old, Jersey Geriatric Center in Elizabeth, New Jersey, just across from New York City. I was upstate New York, drove down three, three and a half hours to see her. They took me in the day room. And I said... You'll have to point her out to me. It's been way too long since I've seen her. See if you can spot her. Is that the little lady slumped over in the wheelchair there at the end of the table? They said, that's her. Walked over, pulled up a chair, sat down, took her little hand in mine, and I said, Bubby, which is Grandma. I said, Bubby, she lifted her eyes, never said a word, just started kissing my hand. Bubby, do you know me? Just kept kissing my hand. It must have gone on for 10 minutes. Finally, I said, Bubby, this is Yitzchak. Do you know me? She leans back. She says, sure. You're my bubala. I don't know if we made contact or not. You know, right then, she couldn't have told you what happened at that altar, at that Baptist church in Detroit back in the 70s right then. She couldn't have told you who Jesus was. She wasn't too sure who I was. Aren't you glad it doesn't depend on us? God never told Noah to nail eight pegs in the side of the ark, instruct them to hang on through the storm. If they got to the other side alive, they'd be saved. Told them to go inside. God uh, closed the door. God sealed them in. Paul, uh, Jesus later says, all that the Father gives me I keep. They're placed in the palm of my hand. No man shall be able to pluck them out. And the apostle Paul then says, we're sealed there by the Holy Spirit of God to the day of redemption. December 22nd, 1999, 20 days before what would have been her 104th birthday, her day of redemption came. Jesus wrapped his loving arms around her, took her home to be with him, stood her before the God of the ages, a child of the living God. Now, I couldn't get to the funeral. Well, I could get there. I didn't think I'd get home. December 22nd, I had visions of being stranded at Newark International over Christmas, and that's no place to spend Christmas, so I didn't go. Out of respect, I put a box in front of my favorite chair in my living room covered a mirror in my house, but not one single time did I ever entertain the notion of standing in my living room, facing Jerusalem, and begging God for her soul. Friend, let me tell you, though I grieved her loss in this life, she was with the master and will never be separated from him again. And I'm telling you, the name of Abraham didn't do it. The name of Moses could never have done it. Thank God in heaven, the name of Jesus did. And what I'm telling you this morning could be repeated in the lives of Jewish families the world over, if but for a gospel witness. And that responsibility God has given you. Go home and read Romans 9, 10, 11. You will see God's passion for his people played out in the Apostle Paul. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 9, verse 3, I'm such continual sorrow of heart that I would wish myself a curse from Christ if it would mean salvation for my kinsmen after the flesh, Israel. Chapter 10, and verse 1, Brother, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel, is that they might be saved. Verse 13, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, when he asks the questions in verse 14, he's still talking about Israel. He hasn't changed the focus. How then shall they? Who would that be? Except the people group that he's evidencing this intense burden for. It could just as easily have read, how then shall Israel, how then shall the Jews, how then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe on him in whom they have not heard? How shall they hear except one preach? And how shall he preach except he be sent? Verse 17, so then faith cometh by hearing, but hearing of the word of God. You know what all this means? Paul's saying, "I'm so brokenhearted over my own people. If it were possible, I'd give up my own salvation, spend eternity in hell. If that mean all the Jews of the world be saved because of that. Where's a passion like that come from, if not from God? I constantly beg God that they would be saved. I know if they just ask, Jesus will save them. But how are they going to do that? They don't believe in him because they haven't heard. And how will they ever hear except people like you send people like me to them with a gospel witness? Chapter 11, verse 30 and 31, he clearly lays a responsibility on your shoulders. He's talking to non-Jewish believers at Rome when he says, by their disbelief, you obtained mercy. Salvation is of the Jew, came through the Jew to you. You got saved and you ought to be thrilled with that. Now he says it's time to reciprocate. So it is then by your mercy, they shall obtain mercy. Friend, it's come full circle. And it is the holy expectation of our righteous God that you who have the gospel see that his people have a hearing of the gospel. And he promises he'll bless you if you'll do it. Genesis 12, 3 is still valid, folks. I will bless them that bless thee. You can be no greater blessing to Abraham's seed than to provide them a gospel witness. And in that, the ability to be saved. I will curse them to curse thee. You can be no greater curse than to withhold that gospel witness. And in that, consign them to an eternity in the devil's hell. So blessing, curse from God. Which would you prefer? I really hope you're not mulling this over. This should be a no-brainer, folks. And the beauty of it, to be blessed in this arena, all you have to do is provide them that gospel witness. Get the words into their ears. Give the Holy Spirit of God something to work with. If you get nothing else out of this message, take this home. There is but one way to God, and that's through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Where are you on this journey? Have you come to that place? Have you had that encounter with Jesus where you've acknowledged your sin for what it is, and how it alienates you from this holy and righteous God. And if you die in this condition, you'll be separated from him for all of eternity in a place called hell. You found that nothing you could do could remedy this situation because it'd be tainted by sinful hands. You needed one greater than you. And in your search, you finally saw Jesus as he's seated at the right hand of the Father. Having come to this earth and taken on human form, Walked this earth sinless for 34 years, goes to the cross, suffered, bled, died, went into the heart of the earth, rose again. Now you see him seated at the right hand of the Father, and you cried out and said, and you pled his blood to cleanse you of your sin. You opened your heart and impl- invited him to save your soul. If you haven't had an encounter that mirrors this, do it today. Do not risk the ride home. I was five minutes from the pastor's house last night. It took me 25 minutes to get there. I think that the road there was—they—they uh, they brought it down to one lane, and they were alternating sides. Different. When our turn came, I got up there, and there was a truck, pickup truck, on its roof, flipped over another car that it had hit. And I don't know whether that. Any of them lived or died in that, with or without Christ. Don't take the risk. Get it settled before you leave this building. It is that. This is the most critical issue in your entire eternal existence. This one you want to get right. Make certain, Jesus. Don't trifle with your eternal soul one more moment. You that are saved, what are you going to do with what you know? Well, I trust in Jesus. Great. That took care of you. Is that it? How are your friends, your neighbors, your relatives, people you work with, rub shoulders with every day of your life? How are they going to get to heaven? Well, preacher, you made that perfectly clear. The only way they can is the blood of Jesus. Well, that's my point. When are you going to start telling them? <laughs> it's not my job. Why do you think we have this preacher? Uh-uh. Sheep makes sheep. Shepherds don't make sheep. It's not pastor's responsibility all by himself to win every soul to Jesus in this community alone. And it's not that he wouldn't love to. God never intended it. You're rubbing shoulders with people he'll never meet. Why aren't you telling them about your Savior? And you can throw the excuses away. There's only one reason for it. We have long come to the place. We care more for their favor than we do their soul. We want these people to like us. We're just not willing to risk making them mad by telling them about Jesus and losing their friendship. Can I tell you, That's an awful high price for them to have to pay to be our friend. They should spend eternity in hell so we can play with them for a little while on earth. Come on, folks, these are eternal souls hanging in the balance between heaven and hell. We have what they desperately need. How dare we keep hiding it? Paul told the church at Corinth, if our gospel be hid, it'd be hid to those that are lost. Stop hiding Jesus from those who need him. Can I put it like this? Stop living like we're ashamed of Jesus. That's really what it boils down to. If he really was the most important thing in our life, he ought not be that tough to talk about. Then what are you going to do with what you know where my people are concerned? They are desperately dependent on you for a gospel witness. Well, they get one. What are you going to do with what you know, where your own eternal soul is concerned, where that of those in your circles of influence are concerned, and where my people are concerned? Father God, we love you this morning. How I thank you. How oh, I thank you that Jesus saved my soul almost 50 years ago. But not only did he save me, but he keeps me for all of eternity. If there's one, if there's one here this morning without that same assurance, Father, I'm pleading, let this be the moment. Let your Holy Spirit draw them to the cross. Let them open their heart and be gloriously saved once and for all. For those of us who are saved, break our heart for lost souls. Give us a boldness in our witness like never before. And, Father, give us a passion to provide this gospel witness to your chosen people who so desperately need to know who their Messiah is. Father, I pray that you'll bless us. And we thank you for what you'll do in us and through us from this day forth. For it's in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.